I'm uh, Bob Watson. Uh, I'm in the United States Navy. Uh, and uh, we're going to tell you a little story about Omaha Beach and uh, all that took place and my participation in that. My father, he had a job all during the Depression, so we had food, shelter, clothing. Uh, there was money to pay the doctor or the dentist, but if I wanted a bicycle, or if I, I played a little baseball, I could have a tendency to knock the ball over the fence once in a while. So, if, But if I wanted a new ball or a new club or a, a new bat or, or I wanted a bicycle, I would never think of preying upon my parents for those for those for the money for to to do that, I had to go earn that money. I would shovel snow, deliver newspapers. I had many, many, many jobs. And when I was 17 years old, I was a head usher at a Warner Brothers Theater in Lynn, Massachusetts. In those days, you had the little pillbox hat and the uniform with a stripe down the side, and you would take uh, the ladies down the aisle by the arm uh, with a flashlight. But at uh, Warner Brothers Theater, when I was 18 years old, the movie that was playing in those days was called Casablanca. And Humphrey Bogart and uh, all of that, uh, and it was a very glorious picture. After the main event was over, the picture of Casablanca was over, then you had Ernie Pyle. Ernie Pyle was the uh, big-time wartime reporter. He was out in the field, and he would show pictures of what was going on uh, in the Pacific, especially in North Africa and even Italy, and where they would be digging these foxholes and uh, eating out of cardboard boxes and, uh, and going hand-to-hand -hand with the enemy. I had a real problem, personally, as to could I really kill somebody? Man, that sounded quite, uh, quite a chore. I, I just didn't know whether I, Well, anyway, I decided that I would join the United States Navy, and, of course, I would have three hot meals a day, a nice place to sleep every night. That kind of sounded pretty good to me, and then I didn't have to go kill people right one-on-one. -on -one. I should interrupt at this point and say, be careful what you ask for. <laughs> Sometimes things just don't work out. I said, what is, where are we going? And he says, you're gonna be, you're gonna be a gator. And I said, say what? <laughs> yes, you're going to be an alligator. You're going to crawl out of the water onto the beach, and you're going to become beach masters. Well, my goodness gracious, what have I got myself into? We were down at Camp Bradford. Camp, uh, training at Camp Bradford was very, very intense. Uh, lots, of, uh, lots of going to the firing range. I found out, uh, strange as it may be, that I was a pretty good shot with that uh, .30-06 Springfield rifle. In fact, I uh, was uh, so amazed at, at my ability that uh, the sergeant who was running the firing line, he offered me a chance to transfer out of the Beachmaster business 
to become a sharpshooter, and I told him, no, I'm in enough trouble right where I'm at. I'll stay here. One of the things they kept mentioning this word at me, pay attention because where you're going, you're considered to be expendable. Ouch. <laughs> Anyhow, we got, uh, we now are leaving Camp Bradford and we're going up to New York and we are now going to join a huge convoy of 181 ships. We're now going to cross the North Atlantic in January. And uh, these 181 ships had many, many cruise ships in them. They had been uh, gutted out in terms of the nice uh, hallways and rooms and suites that people uh, were enjoying as cruises on cruises. And they'd put four bunks high, four feet, four bunks high. And this is how they got so many men across uh, in the end of these uh, luxury liners. When we came down, they called off four names, Watson, Wyatt, Wiggins, Wojcicki, and I said, I'm a good sport. I'll take the top bunk. They said, you don't understand. All four of you get the top bunk. We serve two meals a day aboard this ship. One's called AM and the other called PM. We'll see you in Liverpool, England in 14 days. We were known now as the 5th Engineering Special Brigade. And the 5th Engineering Special Brigade on a given invasion beach will have, con uh, the Navy will have control from of the dune line out to low tide. The Army has uh, a charge of five miles inland. The main purpose of the Beachmaster and the 5th Engineering Special Brigade is to be absolutely certain that everything humanly possible will be done to move the troops and the equipment and the uh, overwhelming amount of supplies will be moved from the uh, from the ocean to the uh, end of the battlefields as uh, quickly as possible. And this, without this, we would not be successful at all. So this is a very, very important position that we found ourselves in. We are now, uh, on the 2nd of June, we were sent down uh, to uh, the, back to uh, Portland uh, again. And now there is some four or five, well, five or 6,000 of us in this big open valley. And up on top of the hillside of this uh, open valley uh, was a general, and he was uh, standing on top of a tank. And he now proceeds to tell us that the invasion of the continent will take place almost immediately and will be, will be known as the Great Crusade. And you here assembled today in this valley will lead the Great Crusade, meaning that we were considered to be the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth waves of troops who will be going ashore on this, on, on this invasion beach. And we still haven't heard of Omaha Beach yet, but on the invasion beach, and, uh, and we're very, very, we, he also, the general also informed us that we were the best trained and the best equipped army in the world, and on and on and on. He also mentioned that some of us will not be coming back. Of course, he's talking to the 
guy to the right, uh, to my right, and my left, you know, <laughs> talking to me. <laughs> it's amazing when you're 18, you really uh, think you're uh, indestructible. <laughs> Anyhow, we uh, we left England uh, uh, on the APA Enrico. APA stands for Amphibious Personal Assault Ship, uh, and we, there were 6,000 of us aboard there, and we are now headed across the English Channel. We are being led by minesweepers because the channel is totally just covered with mines. And miraculously, uh, well, there was a few ships that uh, got blown up. But uh, miraculously, ours, the Enrico made it all the way over across. We're now anchored off of uh, the coast of France. And for the first time, we uh, now hear the words Omaha Beach. The invasion will start the next morning. Uh, and sure enough, we're up at uh, the. We're up about 4:30 in the morning. Uh, we were ordered. Everybody had to take a shower. Uh, we were fed very well, which was most unfortunate. And I'll tell you why in a little bit. Uh, we had a great uh, breakfast, and uh, after after a long wait down below. Uh, our number came up, and we were ordered up to the top, up onto the deck of the Enrico. Uh, there were uh, oh, 40-some-odd of us. I don't remember exactly. There were only four of us beachmasters. Now, the beachmaster is uh, on an invasion beach, has care, custody, and total control of everything that's going to happen on that beach. To put it in simple language, we are the police department, the medical department, communication, hydrographic, engineering, underwater demolition. All of those elements are what's going to make the uh, activity on the beach run smoothly. So we're up on deck, and we, the deck officer is uh, informing us that we are going to go over the side of the Enrico and drop down into a landing craft which is at the water at the water's uh, level. He also told us that you've had many trained many times you've been trained to go up and down on cargo netting. Cargo netting is six inch square rope about the size of your thumb, and it, uh, when you have a lot of troops that are kind of jerking around and uh, hanging on to this going down, it becomes rather precarious. But the uh, the deck officer told us to hang on to hang on as tight as you can because if you fall off of that cargo netting, you we will not stop the war. Ah uh, yes, uh, very sobering moment. The loading officer is an officer on board the landing craft. He ordered the four of us to be uh, back aft. So I was stationed back aft starboard. My back of my uh, body was against the steel housing. On the other side of the steel housing is two large diesel engines. I had the only warm seat down. <laughs> it seemed that way anyway because it was cold, rainy, drizzly. Uh, it was not a good day. Uh, and the landing craft, we are now plowing through the water. The uh, the water it is has uh, 
four, six, and even seven or eight foot swells. And the front end of the landing craft is a square, uh, absolutely square. And we're just banging, banging, banging into the water. There's water coming over. Everybody in the landing craft is soaking wet. And back off starboard where I was, I was up to my knees in water. And we're bailing out the landing craft with the steel of our helmet trying to keep ahead because the bilge pumps for the landing craft could not keep up with the quantity of water that was coming in. All of a sudden, out of a clear blue sky to the right, a huge explosion. And one of the LCVPs, which is the smaller landing craft, hit a hits whatever, uh, a telemine. Uh, a telemine is a, uh, in German is a steel round object. It holds about a pound and a half of dynamite. It took that landing craft with 36 members in it. It took that landing craft right up in the air, probably 30 feet, bodies, uh, timber, engines, they're flying, everything's flying in different directions. I doubt if anybody's about My goodness gracious, we just saw that one blow up, and now one over to the right just blew up, and there's another one blowing up. One of the landing craft that I do remember rather vividly, it looked like it was sitting awfully low in the water, and it had taken on more water than all the rest of them. I guess it hit more bigger swells or whatever, and it just sunk. Landing craft we were in, uh, it hit whatever or whatever hit us. I have no idea. It took the front of that landing craft, disintegrated it. It, uh, We probably uh, lost 30, 30 men, 35 men. Uh, They're either wounded or killed, one or the other. When the back end of that landing craft went flying up into the air to some degree, I went flying out of it. On my right, left hip, excuse me, on my left hip, I had a uh, gas mask. It tore that off as I hit the, the gunnel on the side of the, the landing craft, and it tore my uniform all the way down my left leg, leg and cuts and abrasions. And uh, when I hit that, I believe this... Uh, I can only assume this, uh, that when I hit that salt water, I'm in shock, man. I, my head is somewhere else. And when I hit that salt water with those cuts and abrasions, I grabbed the flotation device, which was right underneath my chin, and uh, the nitrogen capsules exploded, and my flotation device blew up into an 8-inch donut. Uh, that went clear around my body, I went down. I have no idea how far I went down. The only thing I can tell you is that I eventually surfaced. I'm sure subconsciously I was doing everything humanly possible with my hands to motivate myself back up. I got up out of out to the top of the surface. One of our uh, one of our underwater demolition crews, was close by. They can no longer blow things up since we're there. Now the demolition crews with their 12-foot Zodiacs, uh, rubber uh, rubber rafts, uh, they were ordered to hang off the beach uh, 100 to 200, 300 yards, 
pick up those of people who are in trouble. Uh, and of course, that was me. I, I was hanging on to a rope that went around the outside of the Zodiac. It was already full of uh, uh, men that were in trouble. And that got me to the beach. Somehow I got through all of that. Those of you who have seen Saving Private Ryan understand exactly uh, what I'm talking about when everything at the beach was just absolute chaos. The uh, noise was deafening, the water was on fire, the sand was on fire, the landing crafts were on fire, the ammunition is blowing up that's, uh, that's left in the landing crafts that made it to the beach. Uh, it, it was just uh, the body parts everywhere. Uh, it, it's just a, a, an ungodly situation, it's just un unbelievable. How I got through there, I don't know. My orders were to get to the uh, get to the beach, move up the beach to the to the dune line, move right or left to my station. I knew about where I was, and I knew that I had to get up the beach. That leg that uh, got beat up when I went out of the landing craft, I actually thought at one point it was broken. But when I started, when I found that it was necessary to get up that beach and get away from uh, uh, get away from that area, that leg that I thought was it was beginning to work pretty good. <laughs> I was moving up the beach. I got halfway up the beach. I run into an army medic. Uh, he'd lost mostly everything he had except hanging around his neck with these strings. I'd say eight or ten of them, uh, and on those strings were little cloth pouches, and in those pouches was little morphine charrettes about the size of your little finger, uh, and they had a cap on them, and what you would do with these uh, morphine uh, to administer them to uh, the wounded is you would jab them right in the backside, uh, squeeze off the... Uh, morphine into the body, put the cap back on it, and then put the expended cap in the right hand and tell the wounded man to hang on to that cap. Don't let, don't let that go. Hold it on tighter, tighter. Hold on to that morphine syrette. Don't let it out. Hold on tight. Well, the reason for this, it doesn't do anything for the gentleman's wound but what it will do is the next medic come along and see that right hand, he'd open it up and see that morphine, and now he has to make another decision whether he should give him a second one or not. Uh, too, too much morphine sometimes can kill a person. Uh, <clears throat> I left there, and I moved on up to the dune line. I run into an Army captain. Uh, he ordered me to, up to the firing line. I explained to him that I was in the United States Navy and I was a beachmaster and I was in, in route to my station. He wasn't impressed at all. <laughs> Get up on that firing line. <laughs> and so I went up from the firing line. I had a gun belt uh, uh, on uh, that had uh, 10 clips. I fired eight of those clips. 
and I'm down to a clip and a half thereabouts, and I decided that I'd better follow my original orders and I'd better get to my uh, my station. So I left the firing line. The Germans were running all over the place, all over the side of that hill. Uh, I don't know whether I was successful in eliminating any of them or not. There were so many of us firing at them. Uh, I was comfortable with my behavior. Then, as I say, I, I left and went headed for my uh, uh, our station. I found when I got there that we had lost a number of my shipmates. Our, our beach master, uh, uh, Wade, uh, had been killed. Uh, we knew that we were very short-handed, so we commenced to uh, set up our communication people. Uh, we worked very hard in setting up our aid station uh, and also uh, our hydrographic uh, people. All of these elements were starting to function, and we did pretty good. We got things pretty well organized. What was blowing up all of these landing craft coming into the beach was telemines, which were attached to posts and attached to all kinds of contraptions that Field Marshal Rommel had conceived himself. Uh, these were very crudely made. They, they may be just uh, attached to logs that were tethered to the something, an anchor down below, and the tide would come in and the tide would go out. Where is this thing? <laughs> so, I mean, uh, he was very clever, the field marshal. He, uh, he was an excellent uh, uh, soldier, an excellent technician. He, he knew uh, he uh, was very clever in making decisions. In fact, I might say uh, that Hitler hated uh, the field marshal for the simple reason that the field marshal would make uh, field decisions and would make good field decisions and he took care of his men. But Hitler, his philosophy, uh, as far as the men in the field, you stand where you are and you die where you are. Uh, you don't, you don't uh, make decisions in the field. You, you live and die standing there. Now what would happen is the army had pushed the Germans back up over the hill. However, the army would go back and they would put four, three or four or five, six, uh, 88 millimeter cannon, and they would start uh, lobbing the 88 uh, millimeter uh, shells, about four or five inch uh, diameter shells, and they would lob them over, and they knew exactly where the tide line was at all times. So they'd be working one end of the beach and they'd move, uh, it'd become closer and closer to the portion of the beach that we were working. We've lost, uh, we've lost our beach master, we've lost our assistant beach master. Before you know it, the, we had a second class mate, which was in command of our one eighth, uh, one quarter of a mile, uh, which we were maintaining. Uh, and now the coxswain's been wounded and he's been medevaced out. And that left now a second-class bosomate. Well, the full lieutenant come by and uh, the bosomate uh, told him uh, of the situation and the full lieutenant turned around and looked at me and he said, what's your rank? And I said, seaman first class. He says, you're now the coxswain. Give me one of your... Uh, give me one of your dog tags, and I'll bring it back to you uh, in, a, in an hour or so. 
my the last bulldozer I had, I had to have fuel. I start up. We start up the side of the track, and we hit what they call a, pound, a bouncing Betty. Uh, everybody knows Betty, but I have I have no idea where the name came from. But uh, I guess it's a catchy name. But a bouncing Betty is a cylinder. And it's one of those things that if you stepped on it and just stood right there and never moved, you'd probably be just fine. But the minute you step off of this thing, you've disengaged it, and it now jumps up in the air about uh, oh, a couple of feet, maybe uh, 30 inches or so, and then it explodes. Well, what happened is my bulldozer, I cheated the Germans on this one because the bulldozer smothered the thing. <laughs> and, uh, and so they, we had, but I went flying down this road on my right side. Now it was all torn to hell. And so they, he told uh, Corman uh, uh, to take me over to the aid station uh, and patch me up. And... Uh, <clears throat> So I stayed in the aid station that night, and the lieutenant came by, the one that had promoted me the day before, and he looked at Dr. Collier, Collier and says, can I have Watson? Dr. Collier looked at me and looked at the lieutenant and says, limited duty. So the uh, lieutenant says, good, hop in the Jeep. So he took me over uh, oh, maybe uh, half a mile in the Jeep, and there was a flat area in there where they were processing German prisoners. And uh, so now what my job is is I'm going to take two and 300 German prisoners, three abreast, and we're going to march them across the beach to, the, uh, to an LST. Now, an LST will hold 20 tanks, so it's huge. Uh, we did many, many things on Omaha Beach along these same lines, as you can imagine. Uh, it came uh, it came to uh, about 28 days, and six of us were relieved off of the beach. Some of the members of the 6th Naval Beach Battalion stayed there clear into uh, September and October. I was sent back to uh, New York, uh, and I was given three weeks leave. Uh, I was in pretty good shape, uh, but they gave me an extra week. Most of them, most of them got two weeks, but I got three weeks. I think they thought my mother <laughs> could uh, take a little better care of me than what I was getting. But uh, So I was home for three weeks. And I had orders to report to Beach Battalion School, Oceanside, California. Now, in my opinion, the military can do very little uh, right, right, right away quick, very little things that they get right. But one thing that they seem to be exceptionally good at, and that is if you live in Massachusetts, they're going to send you to San Diego. And if you live in San Diego, you're going to Massachusetts. <laughs> they, for some reason or other, they love sending military personnel as far away from where they live as they can get. I don't think I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's uh, uh, intentional. But anyway, so I was sent out here to Beach Battalion School. I found a job out here. They gave us the option since we uh, since I was carrying uh, three uh, Purple Hearts. 
they gave me the option to stay or I could go signed out to the Pacific. And I told them, thank you very much. I'll stay here for a while at least, uh, get my old body back to shape. Uh, I've, uh, I now uh, do, uh, I went into business. Uh, I had uh, 20 to 60 people in my employ uh, for 30 years uh, in the construction world and uh, financing. And we, uh, we retired some 36 years ago, and we've been traveling all over the world. And when I'm not traveling, why I'm doing what I'm doing right here today. I'm in the high schools, or I'm down at the Midway Aircraft Carrier, the museum. Uh, I'm either out at Camp Pendleton or uh, at a Rotary Club or someplace uh, telling the story of uh, uh, Omaha Beach. Uh, the main thing that uh, keeps me going is that uh, somebody has to tell the story of those thousands and thousands of young men that didn't make it. I've had the opportunity to have an in-depth discussion with uh, Mr. Spielberg, who is a, a, a wonderful person to meet and to talked to, he, uh, he wanted to know exactly what I thought about uh, Saving Private Ryan, uh, the movie, and I told him that, uh, uh, that uh, those of us who lived and died that day uh, will live on forever as, the, as your picture will be shown forever and this is as it should be. Uh, the other thing that I found a little bit uh, disturbing is that you you show uh, Tom Hanks uh, uh, walking all over the side of that hillside with his platoon of uh, soldiers, and these platoon these soldiers are 24, 26, 28, 30 years old. Where'd you get them in? There was nobody on that beach that was that age. My officers weren't that old. If you want to go back to January 1944, for example, and you were a young man and you just graduated from college and you have a degree in whatever, in 1944, you graduated from college with a degree, you were immediately marched down the street to officer's training school for 90 days. And you were now, at the end of 90 days, you are now a commissioned officer, either an ensign or a second lieutenant. Some even jumped a rank to uh, Lieutenant JG or a full lieutenant. Uh, and these were the men that were leading uh, the Great Crusade. Uh, all of us kids were, uh, as I've already mentioned to you, uh, Back when uh, December the 7th, 1941, all the 35 year everything up to 35 was put in the service. So all personnel coming into, uh, into the picture, 
uh, had to be 18 or 19, some 17. They were happy to take any of them. Uh, so uh, the, the kids on Omaha Beach were 17, 18, 19 years old. Uh, and, and that was it. Uh, and our offices were, uh, uh, the men, the kids that were on Omaha Beach and the offices that were on Omaha Beach, uh, nobody had the foggiest idea what heavy, heavy combat was all about. And uh, I'm sure that cost a lot of lives because they, they, they didn't realize how to, how to handle it. Uh, it was a, uh, I know in my mind, people ask me in school uh, if I was scared. Uh, scared had nothing to do with it. Uh, we're talking about degrees of shock. Uh, it, it just, uh, you just function. Uh, and you know, it goes back a little bit to the fact that uh, if I wanted a bicycle, I had to earn it well. The kids on Omaha Beach, they refer to them sometimes as the greatest generation. Maybe so. Maybe so. Uh, they got the job done. <laughs>